0: all right everybody bring it in once again we are back here on the read option i'm solo today we're gonna do a quick show rapid fire obviously we had the national championship wrapping up last night we have Baseball opening day, opening weekend, which frankly was just electric, depending on how much you watched or didn't watch. Uh, Sam Darnold being traded out of New York and headed to Carolina in Charlotte to join the uh, Carolina Panthers and the NBA. We haven't talked about the NBA here for a little bit, and I'm excited to kind of get back into it. You know, the tournament kind of takes over the basketball world. People forget about it, but look, we're only about... Six weeks away from the start of the play-in tournament. So we're really getting down to nut and bolts time here. Uh buyout season is done. We'll touch on a little bit with that. We're going to go through kind of the standings and where the East versus the West split. I hope everybody had a wonderful Easter. I hope everybody is just – I mean, look, the weather's changing. There's positive vibes flowing everywhere in the world. So if you're not fired up right now, I mean, I don't know what to tell you because the tournament, it takes a lot out of us as sports fans – We have the Masters coming up this weekend. We're going to do some previewing of that on Thursday's pod. But for today, we're going to stick to what has been most relevant, the kind of stuff we had from this past weekend. And we're going to start here with, even though I know it's been talked about to death, and I know we're a little bit behind on this one, but the final four was this weekend, followed up by the national championship game last night, Monday night. The final four was kind of the two sides of the coin that we think of when we think of the NCAA tournament, right? Which is that a lot of times there's a team that gets there and just one team is way better and you're going to get an absolute blowout. And then on the other side of it are these magical moments. These, this is why we love sports moments. And that's what we saw on Saturday night, which was just an absolutely incredible game between UCLA and Gonzaga. Now, Gonzaga, wire to wire this year, up until last night, had been the best team in college basketball. They had not lost a game by more than double digits with the exception, or by less than double digits, by except for once this entire year, which was an eight-point win they had over West Virginia in the very beginning of the season. They were down, I think it was eight or nine at the half against BYU in the West Coast Conference Championship. They came roaring back, ended up winning that game by 10. So Gonzaga hasn't been tested and this UCLA squad, Johnny Juzang, right? Uh, Javi, uh, Javi Jimenez, like Javi Haquez, like we're talking about this scrappy team led by Mick Cronin. And it's funny because when Mick Cronin went to UCLA, people thought, man, how are you going to get this Cincinnati grinder style mentality out to the West coast in the city of angels, right? In Hollywood. And yet, that's exactly the culture that he built with this UCLA team. And oddly enough, I think it might be kind of a perfect fit. I think it's kind of the thing that was missing. You know, Steve Alford was there for a long time. They had some good teams with Lonzo Ball, TJ Leaf. They don't hold a candle to the grittiness and the toughness that they had here. And as collectively, we all just completely undervalued the Pac-12. Them. And Scotty and I dove into that a lot last week. But what UCLA did on Saturday to hang in that game against a really, really good Gonzaga team was honestly mind-blowing and incredibly impressive for a unit that started off the year really hot and then kind of disappointed. Now, unfortunately for UCLA, the story shifted with one of the most miraculous shots that I've ever seen in the NCAA tournament, which was Jalen Suggs pulling up from 44 feet, basically two steps across the half-court line, and burying a bank shot at the buzzer. He had 3.3 seconds left. I mean, I was watching the game alone with the dog, Lexi, and whole. I stood up and, and kind of did one of those moments where you just like pump your fist up in the air and you look for someone to celebrate, but I'm like, oh, sh- shit, I'm watching this alone. Oh, my God, what the hell did I just see? And from that moment on, man, I was fired up. I mean, it was like midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, and I was still buzzing, scrolling through Twitter, just constantly checking like, I, I can't believe what I just watched. I couldn't believe what I just watched, and all the credit in the world to Gonzaga for hanging in that game, but more importantly, the way UCLA played down the stretch to be for both teams to be shooting 60% from the floor more or less throughout that entire game is it's unbelievably telling as to the quality of a game of basketball that we saw the shot making. You know, one of the other famous last second shot was the Christian Laettner shot against Kentucky. Christian Leitner, full court pass, shimmy shake, fade away from the elbow, buries it. But the thing that no one remembers about that game was that both teams shot 60% from the floor. And so it wasn't just the final shot. It was the 40 minutes leading up to that final shot that made that game so special. And that's what we saw in the final four between UCLA and Gonzaga. And hats off, because it's one of the best tournament games I've ever seen in my life, like flat out, hands down. Now on the women's side, we saw Arizona take on Stanford. And that was an awesome game too. This whole women's tournament was awesome. And with the way that it started with the inequities, right. And, and having to have Sedona Prince go viral to even get an equal weight room for that, for them to show out after that and put on the show that that whole tournament was it's a credit to the women's side, and, and it's an even bigger factor and, and more rationale as to we need to make sure that we change and clean up some of these inequities in women's basketball, especially in compared to the men's. And I, I get that there are people out there who want to say, you know, well, the men bring in the money. The amount of Twitter impressions, or not just Twitter, social media impressions from the women's tournament versus the men's, especially in the national championship game, for the whole tournament, though, 30 million for the women's as opposed to just a hair under 15 million for the men's. And if that's not extremely telling, I don't know what else is. I don't know what else you can say, right? Because the women's team has fans, the women's uh, side, you know, the, the, the women's college basketball conferences, the girls that are out there playing, they have fans. They have people who are locked into it, both men and women. Right, This isn't the conventional women's basketball that we think of, particularly on the college side. These girls know how to play, and they balled out, and they put on a show. The Elite Eight was better than the men's by far. The Final Four, with the exception of that Gonzaga-UCLA game, I thought the two games in the uh, you know Arizona-Upsetting UConn and the Stanford-South Carolina game were both incredible watches. So the totality of those Final Fours, of their Final Four, was better than the men's. Uh, but that you see like in game was incredible. Now, switching to the national championship. Because obviously like some of that's dated and I get it, but I just you know I had to get my thoughts out there because I'm part of me is still reeling from that that challenge Suggs shot. I hope it doesn't get washed away because of the way that the national championship went. Because in our minds eye it shouldn't. But for whatever reason, we will look back on that in 20 years and we'll remember how we felt in that moment. And we'll remember how amazing it was, but because they didn't win the championship, people who weren't around to watch it live, I'm worried about how long it will live. Unfortunately for Suggs and company on on the Gonzaga Baylors, they ran into an absolute buzzsaw in Baylor. Baylor defensively was off the charts last night. And and not just, I mean, their entire game plan. This is a team that shot 41% from three as a team. All right, and I said this to Scott when we were talking on the pod last week, previewing the Final Four, and the reason that I liked Baylor to win was because of their defensive play at the guard position. The way that they'd be able to put pressure on Jalen Suggs, who had a really good game and did everything he could to try to drag that Gonzaga team into that game, it wasn't close from the tip-off. I mean, we were looking at 11-1, to and we were three minutes into the game. Because Baylor was shooting lights out from three. They opened up going five for five from three. They end up shooting like a ridiculous 60 plus percent from three in the game. And they just never stopped. They never put the gas pedal down. There was a couple of points, the end of the first half, beginning of the second half, where Gonzaga was, was playing, you know, to par, right? They were playing kind of even with Baylor, but they never really got back into the game. The, the closest the lead got down to was 10. So... I give an immense amount of credit for the season that Gonzaga had. Nobody should be sitting here now shitting on Gonzaga saying, oh, they were overrated. No, that Gonzaga team is loaded, and guess what? Most of those kids are coming back, and they're going to be really, really good next year. And if there's one thing we know about college basketball, the from ruins to redemption, right, that is the classic call from when UVA lost to UMBC as a one seed to then coming back and winning a miraculous tournament just two years ago in 2019. Gonzaga's going to be back, but last night was about Baylor. Every single aspect of it, Jared Butler, Davion Mitchell, both of them leading the charge. Masio Teague hit some big threes. And remember, too, both of the big guys for Baylor were in foul trouble. Flo Thamba fouled out of the game with about 10 minutes left. So when you eliminate the ability to rim run the way that Baylor can with their athletic bigs, their size – I started to get worried. Now, I had my money on Baylor. I had them winning my brackets. Shout out, finished in 99 percentile. No big deal. Um, (laughs) But in all honesty, man, this Baylor team, you could have put any other team in college basketball, any team you wanted. You could put the best version of Gonzaga out there. Nobody was beating Baylor last night. And it's a testament to what that team does. Now, there's a bigger question, right? You know, playing in the West Coast Conference versus playing in the Big 12. I I don't say that to diminish the West Coast Conference as much as emphasize how good and competitive the Big 12 was all season. You know, West Virginia was the only team in the, you know, they were also a Big 12 team that lost to Gonzaga until the tournament by less than double digits. They lost by eight. Right, like I said at the top of the pod, so this Big 12 conference was loaded with really good teams, and they had, they could beat you in a, in a ton of different ways. Right, they, their teams were so uniquely different. And Baylor, night in and night out, with the exception of their weird co- you know COVID pause that kind of threw them out of their rhythm, Baylor was the best team in that conference all year. Yes, they lost to Oklahoma State and Cade Cunningham, who's probably going to be the first overall pick. Yes. They also lost to West Virginia just one game back from that COVID you know, shutdown, which shut them down for two weeks. Baylor, from start to finish, I think, was as good as Gonzaga all year. And if it wasn't for that COVID pause, they very easily could have gone undefeated all the way through the Big 12. But the fact that they lost games I do think plays a role. Having to overcome adversity is an incredibly difficult difficult thing to do in game when it's not something you've had to do all year and yes gonzaga was down eight against byu and the west coast championship and yes they were in that grinded out game against ucla just two nights earlier but the emotional toll that it took on them i think really played a role in this and the last thing i'll add here is i said this to scott is i think both of these teams were very evenly matched I think they played similar styles of basketball. They both rely a lot on the three. They both rely a lot on their big guys. And so much of what they do is guard driven, transition driven. And when you have teams that match up so perfectly, there's only going to be a few differentiating factors between the two. One of which is flat out athleticism. And Baylor by far was going to be ahead in that category. It just is. You just look at the athletes ahead, especially at the big guy spots. The other side of it was going to be who shot better from three in this game and Baylor starting out five for five from three, you know, finishing the way that they did. It it was, there was no doubt in my mind as to how Baylor was going to go on to win that game. The second it started, right? We were three, four minutes in this game. And I said, "Uh Oh, Gonzaga's in trouble. And they were, and all credit to Baylor because when teams are that evenly matched on paper, you know, you have to find specific things that are going to differentiate the two. And for Baylor, it was their, the fact that they have played in tough games, they had lost games this year and had better athletes on the court throughout the entirety of the game. So all credit to Baylor. It was an unbelievable game, uh, unbelievable run for them, Uh, disappointing championship game, I should say, but an unbelievable run for the Baylor bears. All right, I want to switch gears now and talk about the NFL because even though it's the offseason, we know about the NFL that it is a, it's a league that never sleeps, right? It, it never gets a day off. There's always something to talk about, particularly when we're getting ready for the NFL draft. And we love mock drafts on this podcast. We talk about them all the time. We've done them here. There will be a read option mock draft 2.0 coming out. But since the last time we really dove into it, a lot has changed. And most recently, it was the Jets trading Sam Darnold to the Panthers, uh, which now opens up the Jets to take a new quarterback. Now, for a long time, we didn't really know exactly what the Jets were thinking. I think a lot of people thought that the Jets were enamored with Zach Wilson and they liked Sam Darnold, but the overall value, how do you equate the value of getting that second pick, trading out of it, Develop picking up assets for this year, next year, in the future, even multiple, you know, first rounders this year. Cause a team that maybe wants to move up and take that second overall pick is going to have to somehow finesse as many draft picks as they can just to have the equity to go up and, and get the number two overall pick, especially in a draft that really starts at number two. I love this trade. Uh, I love it for the Jets. Okay. Cause if you're the Jets, you're going to get your quarterback. You still have a ton of cap space for next year because the Jets were smart and they were conservative with how they spent their money in free agency this year. But they also got pieces that will be able to come in and help them right away on both sides of the ball, right? We talked about the impact of Carl Lawson on the defensive end, having a stud pass rusher there. Uh, you know, and, and look, their defense wasn't terrible. It, it, it wasn't good. Don't get me wrong. It was not good at all, especially after the Jamal Adams trade. But there are pieces there that you like. And they still have a lot of draft capital this year. And on the offensive side of the ball, they go out and they get Corey Davis, you know, and they have some, some, you know, they went out and get Keelan Cole and they brought in Tevin Coleman. So they're not move the needle pieces necessarily. I love the Carl Lawson trade and Corey Davis still has a lot of high upside, but you're, you're going to go out and you're going to get a guy. All right. And this means that Robert Salah and Joe Douglas are planting their flags in the Zach Wilson camp. Now, it's not a done deal that they're going to get Zach Wilson number two, that that's going to be the quarterback that they pick. But I'm smart enough to know what I don't know. And I, I'm smart enough to know what the people who do know what they're talking about are saying. That being said, we all thought the Browns were going to go after Sam Darnold. They drafted Baker Mayfield last minute, right? So crazy stuff can happen in the NFL. And I think we all are kind of aware of that. But Zach Wilson does seem like the guy next in line after trevor lawrence he's got a rocket arm he can throw from so many different you know arm slots and he can throw on the run and i went on my tirade last week about how ridiculous pro days are in the nfl and why we don't really need to care all that much about nfl pro days but zach wilson has an upside that none of the other quarterbacks in this class outside of trevor lawrence has not mac jones definitely not mac jones i think trey lance might I've been a big Trey Lance fan. And I think if he, depending on where he ends up, because obviously that is primarily the biggest indicator as to how these guys pan out. Uh, You know, Justin Fields, people are enamored with his athleticism and, and certain things. I like Justin Fields, but he's going to be a project. So if he ends up falling to 15 with the Patriots or to the Broncos, you know, maybe, you know, maybe he does have a chance to be successful, but you know, if he ends up going number three overall uh, to the 49ers, I think that would be a great spot for him. But it ultimately will depend on what team takes him because he's going to be a project. Now, Zach Wilson is also going to be a bit of a project, but the raw arm talent, the the special throws that he makes, I get the appeal. And I think he's got a little bit of that, you know, classic golden boy look to him that i think might really play well in new york now going from byu in utah all the way out to the new york media is going to be an adjustment and we've seen the new york media eat quarterbacks alive and so i hope for his sake for robert salas sake and for joe douglas's sake that it works out but there is no guarantee now to the other side of this trade the panthers side i love this trade for carolina like Absolutely love it. All right, Carolina was already a frisky team this past year with with Teddy Bridgewater, who's a pretty good quarterback, and now Teddy's going to be the backup behind Sam Darnold. I'm, I got to double check. I think they might have been teammates with the Jets too, so there's a little bit of familiarity there. But for Sam Darnold, you're getting to you're getting a rebirth. All right, and on top of it, Carolina did not have to give up much to go and get him. A fourth rounder, a sixth rounder, and a future second. Like in totality, sure. But for this year, you're still getting the number eight overall pick if you're Carolina, which could be Jalen Waddle, right? It could be Penae Sewell. It could be Devontae Smith. And if it is one of those guys, then hell yeah, that's a that's that is a perfect situation to then go with uh, Christian McCaffrey out of that backfield, right? Yes, they did lose. Curtis Samuel, but they have other players on that team and playmakers that Sam Darnold's never even had nothing even close to it in his repertoire before. So you're giving him assets as, as far as what he can work with on the field. The offensive line is still a problem. And if for some reason, Penny Sewell falls or they want to trade back, maybe regain some later on assets and you want to draft you know, Christian Darisau or Rashawn Slater uh, from Northwestern. Either one of those guys, I think, would be a really, really good fit. Uh, right now, McShea has Penny Sewell falling all the way to 13 with the Chargers. That would be shocking to me if that actually happened. And if you're Carolina, I think you go out and you get Penny Sewell immediately, especially with the eighth overall pick. Uh, but depending on, you know, where they go in the draft, this could be a really sneaky, like awesome pickup for Carolina Panthers team that has been missing a sense of direction for a long time. Now, I've div- oh, there's one other thing here too with Carolina that I wanted to add. In order for Carolina to resurrect Sam Darnold, which by the way, I don't even think he's that much of a lost cause that you need to resurrect him. But to to get that number two overall talent out of Sam Darnold, You have the perfect guy as your offensive coordinator to do so. All right, Joe Brady made Teddy Bridgewater look like a pretty good quarterback last year with a horrible roster. People speak so highly of Matt Rule as a head coach. I think the coaching staff in Carolina will be massive for Sam Darnold. Sam Darnold has all of the arm talent in the world. I think he has a bright future down there. And you're getting to play with Christian McCaffrey. All right, we're talking about one of the best, pure, playmakers in all of the NFL. And you still have Robbie Anderson on the outside there too. So it's not like he's without weapons as is, but with that number eight overall pick plus your second, your third round picks, there are absolutely plug and play kind of guys that you can bring in here in the, uh, in the draft. And, you know, you see what you have with Donald, you're giving him the best opportunity to succeed. You're giving him a change of scenery. Uh, And in a division that, you know, we don't really know what to expect out of the saints, without drew Brees, i think we all kind of anticipate that atlanta is going to have a bit of a bounce back year but we we don't really know you know how much does matt ryan have left in the tank i don't know a wild card is nowhere near out of the realm of possibility for the carolina panthers and i think if you're looking for someone to elevate you the difference in talent alone between teddy bridgewater and sam Darnold is pretty massive and i think carolina might have honestly stolen this and you compare that too to what Jared Goff went for and I get that you know you know you had to or Matthew Stafford went for I should say uh and there obviously there was a quarterback swap there but even what the Eagles got in return for Carson Wentz and that leads me to my 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 hot take I'm going to plant my flag in this right now Sam Darnold will be better on the Panthers than Carson Wentz is in Indy and I'm honestly removing all of my biases from this I think Carson Wentz has a higher upside I think Carson Wentz is a more talented quarterback. He's a more talented athlete. But I am not sold on this idea that just because Carson Wentz is now going to Indianapolis, that he's going to be any better than what he was last year, which was arguably the worst starting quarterback in the NFL. When the guy got benched, he had been so bad. So Sam Darnold, when he's played, has shown flashes of being good. And I'm telling you right now, you could have put any quarterback from that draft on the New York Jets over the last three years. And they would not have been any more successful than Sam Darnold. So I'm, tell- I'm planting my flag right now. Sam Darnold is going to be a better quarterback in Carolina than Carson Wentz will in Indianapolis. Now, for some of this draft stuff that we missed, right, because we didn't quite talk about all this. It was the big trade a couple weeks ago. San Francisco moves up to number three. The Miami Dolphins moved down to six, the Eagles now drafting at number 12, the Eagles pick up an additional first round pick. So there is a chance that next year the Eagles could have three first round picks if the Colts make the playoffs or Carson Wentz plays 70% of the snaps for the Colts this upcoming season. I'm not going to go on an Eagles tirade here. I've come around on the trade a little bit, still not a lot. I still think it's a mistake because I still think you're you're missing out on potentially. And I know people hate this word, but I'm going to say it anyway, generational talents. And you can put that in quotation marks, picking up that future asset and potentially having three first round draft picks is a lot of capital. And I, and I understand the assets behind it, but I don't trust the GM to do anything good with those picks. I, I just, I have no faith in Howard Roseman when it comes to drafting, nor should any Eagles fan because He has zero track record of showing you that he's any good at it. I mean, the best draft pick he's ever had is Carson Wentz, you know, and and then even if you want to go, all right, just put Carson Wentz aside. Who's the best positional player that he's drafted? Especially if you just look in the first round, Derek Barnett. I like Derek Barnett. I don't love Derek Barnett. I think he's underwhelmed for where we drafted him, Um, but he's a really good player. You know, he's a solid player. You want to go like, you know, Michael Kendricks. You know, he was like a, he was a mid-round pick. He played pretty well for the Eagles. He was a big part of their Super Bowl run. But I, I don't, I don't trust Howie to, to make the most of those picks next year. If, if in fact we do get three first round picks, or even if it's two firsts and a second next year, in addition to the Eagles, you know, first rounder, right? So you have two in the first round and then two in the second round. I don't trust Howie to make those picks either. I, I, I just don't. And there's nothing to suggest that we should have any sort of faith in him as a fan base. And I know I just said we, but it's just the truth. It's just the truth. Now, to the other side of this, San Francisco 49ers, they move up to number three. They're taking a quarterback. The early rumblings are that they love Mac Jones. Now, Mac Jones had a pro day the same day as Justin Fields. The 49ers QB coach was at Justin Fields' pro day, and Kyle Shanahan was at the 49ers. That is telling all right, the 49ers head coach, Kyle Shanahan, was at Mac Jones's pro day and the, while their QB coach was watching Justin Fields on the same day. Now, I don't think Mac Jones is the ultimate fit there for him. I think for Mac Jones, it would be the best possible fit. But for Kyle Shanahan and the Niners, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I still think Trey Lance would be the best fit in San Francisco. Because you can use him mobily a little bit. And and remember, Kyle Shanahan worked with RG3 his rookie year when he was the rookie of the year. When he went on one of the most incredible single seasons we had really seen from a mobile quarterback who could also throw the ball a little bit. And obviously, you would think, all right, well, he's learned from his mistakes. He wouldn't run him into the ground like they did with RG3. But also, from a physical build, RG3 is about 50 pounds uh, lighter and a good three to four inches shorter than Trey Lance. So I feel like if you're going to draft a quarterback up there that fits for the kind of all-encompassing modern-day quarterback, you want a mobile guy who can also chuck the ball all over the field, and that's what you get when you're talking about Trey Lance. Now, he is a bit of a project, and it's a bigger risk because the floor with Mac Jones, like, we know where his floor is at. We know he's going to complete a high percentage of his passes. We know he's going to be incredibly accurate. We know he throws a great deep ball. But are we sure that he's got the highest upside? Now, the 49ers have made a career, and Kyle Shannon has, of maximizing the quarterback talent that he has. And maybe at this point in his life, he knows the exact model and shape and size and style of quarterback that he wants. But it just doesn't make sense to me. Because as much as I like Mac Jones, and you can go back and listen to some of our early draft stuff, I was very high on Mac Jones. I have Mac Jones ahead of Justin Fields on my list. But I still don't think Mac Jones gives you the upside. And what happens in a game when you're playing somebody who can create pressure with a front four without blitzing, right? And now all of a sudden, the speed of the game, the coverage, all of that, they're able to drop extra guys into coverage, and they're able to pressure the quarterback – And you have a guy who's just not, he's just not mobile. I mean, maybe Mac Jones just is that cerebral when it comes to understanding the game of football. And according to his coaches and guys like Steve Sarkeesian, he is. But I'm just not dead set on him being the optimal choice for the 49ers. Now, again, Kyle Shanahan will get the most out of him that is there. And for Mac Jones, it would be the best possible landing spot. But I would think that there are better Higher upside QBs, but the floor is also probably its highest with Mac Jones. Now, for the third team in this little you know trade here, this uh, this little threesome trade, Miami drops from three down to six, and right now they have uh, McShay has the Dolphins taking Devonte Smith. I think that would be an awesome pick there. Um, you know, you, you can kind of look through that roster at number six. I think they have to target a wide receiver. You know, I don't think Kyle Pitts will be there at that point. Maybe Jamar Chase is, and yes, you know, they have Devonte Parker and they just signed Will Fuller to that one-year deal, but I think they want to get weapons for Tua. I think they want to be able to spread the field out as much as they can and pairing Tua up with his national championship hero counterpart in Devonte Smith would be an awesome thing to see if you're a Miami Dolphins fan. I'm just not. I'm not. Again, I'm not. I wouldn't love it. I mean, I guess you can always say like after given to his size and his injury history and the fact that they did just go out and invest in a wide receiver, even if it is just for one year with Will Fuller, maybe Penny Sewell to help shore up that offensive line would be the better call. But they didn't have a bad offensive line in Miami last year. Like not not at all. Um, but they picked up a couple extra draft picks. They have a first rounder in 2023 down the line a little bit. So if it's a short term, Hey, you know what? We just want to get as many weapons for Tua as we can. We, we have the faith in our offensive line, then. All right. Like that, that would be a terrifying receiving core. Devante Parker, Devonta Smith and Will Fuller. I'd sign up to watch them. And especially in them, uh, them candy ass uniforms as PFT likes to say, I I would love to see that. Honestly, I think it'd be a lot of fun Um, outside of that. I mean, this draft seems to be kind of moving all over the place. You know, for the first couple months of mock draft season, it felt pretty much like, all right, we're going to have Penny Sewell go in the top six. We're going to have a few wide receivers probably go in the top 10. We're going to have at least three quarterbacks go in the top five. Uh, And now it kind of feels like open season. And I'm really excited to see what our next mock draft will look like because these trades, whether it's the Sam Darnold trade Or the trades with the Dolphins, the Niners, and the Eagles have completely shifted the way that we're looking at this year's draft. And I, for one, am excited because we are now just 24, 23 days away from getting to the NFL draft here in 2021. And it's one of my favorite times of the year. So keep it locked in and excited, and we will have more draft coverage coming up uh, as we get closer to the end of April. All right, just a couple of quick things here as we are wrapping up this, again, condensed, shorter episode of The Read Option. Um, I should hopefully have both guys back when we get our next episode out. If not, it'll definitely be me and Scotty. We're going to break down the Masters and everything out and preview that earlier. So I'm not going to get too much into it now because I'm not sure how much y'all paid attention to opening day this weekend. Probably not that much because remember, it's baseball. And outside of your regional team in your hometown that you grew up rooting for, Most people don't pay attention on a national landscape to baseball, which is a shame because right now we have maybe one of the most incredible athletes of our time, at least my time. Shohei Otani did something ridiculous over the weekend, which is by the time Saturday night ended, he had not only pitched the fastest pitch in the league so far this year at a little over 101 miles an hour, But he also hit an absolute tank that had the fastest exit velocity of any player in all of baseball through the first three days of the baseball season, 115 miles an hour on his exit velocity. He also did it, by the way, in the first inning, both the pitch and the home run. This guy is so ridiculous and also just flat-out fascinating. Think about if Shohei Otani had come along in 2006, 2007, when Dice K Matsuzaka showed up to MLB. I'm not sure how many of you guys remember Dice K or not, but Dice K was a phenom who showed up in Boston from Japan. He was the first major Japanese player to come to the United States since Ichiro. He threw the gyro ball. He had all these funky pitches, a funky delivery. And I remember so vividly the Sports Center coverage of his first pitch. And this is back in the day when everybody had flash cameras, right? So anytime a a pitch was being the first pitch of a World Series or the kickoff of the Super Bowl, they would do that awesome shot of of ground level in the field and they'd show you the stands and it would just be, and you would see all these thousands and thousands of flashes going off at one time the world, the entire sports world revolved around his first start in the majors. And now we have a guy who is not only throwing 101 miles an hour from the mound, which would have been insane to think about back in 2004, 2005, but is also hitting bombs and batting second in the lineup for a major league team at the same time. And I'm trying really hard not to sound hyperbolic here, but I think it's absolutely absurd that we don't talk about this dude enough. And yes, like there was a lot of talk on ESPN and SportsCenter on a few podcasts, which were more or less passing thoughts, right? We're talking about like BCD segments of radio shows, TV shows. This would have been the top story on every single radio show and TV show and podcast of podcasts were around back in 2000 and. The mid two thousands, right? Like during this time frame, and it's another great example about how far off baseball has has dropped in terms of the American sports zeitgeist. All right, imagine right now if Justin Fields, this insanely at this insane athlete, he's built, he's strong, right? He ran a four four forty. Imagine if not only Justin Fields was a promising quarterback prospect, but also was a like first round graded safety on the, on the defensive side of the ball. Right. This is so out of character for sports. This is crazy. We have not seen a pitcher who can also hit like this literally since Babe Ruth. And the fact that he's actually doing this, he does it as well as he can, as he has been. And yes, he's dealt with injuries, but when he's been healthy, he does nothing but mash home runs and paint the freaking corners. It's a shame that baseball has gotten to this point because right now we would have, if baseball was still, was still cared about in the national landscape as it was 15 years ago, we would talk about this guy all the time. He would be appreciated for how ridiculous this is two way players in football. I get it's not a perfect comp, right? Because of the physical toll. And I, and I totally get that. But the point being is just imagine the hype around it that would exist in the number one sport in America, football. The hype that would exist around a player that could not only be a stud on offense, but could also be a stud on the defensive side of the ball. And right now, where baseball has fallen to, at at best, number three in our sports world and our sports rankings here in America, baseball has fallen so far that we have this crazy, crazy, generational, once-in-a-lifetime kind of player who's out here doing just absurd things, 150 miles an hour off the bat, 101 out of his hands. This is like legitimately really unique and crazy stuff, and just no one really cares about it. Or at at the best, it's the third or fourth story that they talk about on Around the Horn. And again, it's just another example of how far... Baseball has fallen. Last thing I want to talk about here on the pod this week, a little bit of NBA talk, because like I said in the intro, as we are starting to fade out of March Madness, right? And yes, we're going to be locked into the draft, but free agency is already pretty much come and gone in football. So it's pretty much just the draft at this point. This is the part of the year where the NBA really starts to shine. And what's really interesting about this current setup is that if you look at the standings right now in both the East and the West, it looks completely different than it did just one month ago. And it wasn't because of the trade deadline and it wasn't because of the buyout markets. It's because of how insanely unpredictable this entire NBA season has been. Now, in the East, it is fairly predictable. You have the Nets, the Sixers, and the Bucks right? They're leading the charge. It's three and then kind of everybody else, but the struggling Atlanta Hawks, right? A lot of people have just written them off. They fired their coach. They promote Nate McMillan, which frankly seemed like a it was going to happen regardless. You know, it, it was just a matter of time until that happened, especially when we all saw that they were bringing in Nate McMillan. You know, I, I felt bad, but at the same time, like it was inevitable. It, it just kind of was. And this Hawks team, Sitting at 26 and 24, they're the four seed as of right now. Now, they're six and a half games behind the Bucs. The Bucs are a game and a half behind the Sixers. And the Sixers are just a half game out of first place. So right now, it seems like the Nets and the Sixers are kind of battling back and forth there for the number one seed. But the Bucs are playing really, really well right now. They just signed Drew Holiday to a four-year extension. Now they got a big three, well, big three there between Middleton, Giannis, and now Drew Holiday that is kind of locked up for the foreseeable future. So can't sleep on this Bucks team. Definitely can't sleep on the Sixers team who just got Joel Embiid back this past weekend. And the Nets, you know, the Nets are all over the place. When Kyrie's there, Harden's a little banged up right now, still have no idea what's going on with KD. And if you're a Nets fan, that's got to be really scary. Uh, but they could just be extra cautious and say, "Hey, once we get these three guys together come playoffs." It's a wrap, which it very well might be. And I hope that doesn't happen because so far this year, it's been really competitive. It's been really fun to watch some of the top teams go off against each other. Now, in the West, it's a completely different story. The West is all over the place. The one consistent that they've had all year has been the Utah Jazz being the number one seed. Now, after them, we'd seen the Lakers. We've seen the Clippers. And right now we see the Phoenix Suns. Yes, the surging Phoenix Suns, the Chris Paul, Devin Booker led Phoenix Suns. And they are starting to hit a point where they are extremely dangerous. They actually have a better record on the road at 17 and six than they do at home at 18 and eight. Yes, they have one more win, but they have two more losses. So I'm saying that the Phoenix Suns are a really good basketball team. And what I love about this team is how Chris Paul is just orchestrating all of it and how every single player on that roster basically just follows the lead of Chris Paul. Now, Mikael Bridges has been awesome for them, right? Sarge gives them some off-the-bench minutes. They have some decent pieces around them. Cam Jordan, great shooter. But the Phoenix Suns, as a collective team, they're going to be there. They're going to absolutely be there. I don't know what to make right now of the Clippers. The Clippers are three games back of Phoenix. Phoenix are only two and a half out of first place. The Clippers seem to be in a weird state. That team is just weird. I don't know how what to make of any of it. Kawhi reportedly does not want to be a ball handler. That's why they went out and got Rajon Rondo at the trade deadline. Kawhi doesn't want to handle the ball. He wants At least it's not that he doesn't want to handle the ball. He doesn't want to distribute the ball. He doesn't want to be the main distributor on the team. And so I guess they're going to bring in, bring in Rondo to kind of be a little bit like his Kyle Lowry. But then where does Paul George fit in all this? We've seen nights where Paul George has looked like one of the best five players in the league. And it's the Rosillo theory of 30, 30 and 13, right? You wouldn't be surprised if he drops 30 and you wouldn't be su- surprised if he puts up 13 points. There's, there is no surprise with Paul George anymore. The inconsistency is his consistency. And as much as, You know, I I love watching Kawhi in the postseason because I think he is one of the best postseason players that we've really had in recent memory. I have minimal faith that the Clippers are going to get their stuff together here uh, by by the run, you know, by the time that they kind of really need to. Now, looking at the rest of the West here, the Denver Nuggets have been playing really, really well. They're a game behind L.A. I think Denver ends up taking that three seed. The Aaron Gordon pickup at the trade deadline I thought was an excellent, excellent pickup for them. He fills basically the Jeremy Grant void, but I think he does it even a little bit better. I think he's a better defender than Jeremy Grant. I think he's a better overall athlete. I think he's, eh, they're about to push when it comes to shooting. And I, I don't know. I think he's a really good fit. You know, he spent the majority, basically, he and Jeremy Grant flip flopped roles. Jeremy Grant was a grinder who started on the, the process Sixers teams, those terrible Sixers teams, and has worked his way around the league and finally got to a point We said, you know what? Detroit wants to let me run a team. So God damn it. I'm going to run this team. I'm going to be the best player on this team. I'm going to close out games. I'm going to put up over 20 points a game. Watch me do this. And yeah, Detroit has the third worst record in the league and is in the last place in the Eastern conference. It makes sense when Jeremy Grant's your best player on the flip side, the Orlando magic had Aaron Gordon for the last five years And Aaron Gordon's just trying to do the exact same thing. Aaron Gordon has tried to be the best player on a bad team for years. That's that's what his entire role has been is what Jeremy Grant's doing right now. And now Aaron Gordon is finding himself like, hey, you know what? Being the third or fourth option on a really good team, playing with Jokic, playing with Jamal Murray, that's a lot of fun. I'm having some fun out there in Denver. I hate the fact that he's wearing number 50 because of the dunk contest shit. It's like, dude, come on, like. It's a dunk contest. I get you got robbed, but he was like, he was a part of like two of the greatest dunk contests of all time, at least of the last 20 years. So just get over yourself. All right. It's ridiculous. It's a dunk contest. Either way, he really helps that Denver team. And I think he's going to make a difference come uh, postseason. Number five, we have the Lakers. No LeBron, no AD. Andre Drummond was in for all about five minutes before his toenail got ripped off. The Lakers are in some trouble. The Lakers are in some danger here, because remember, we have the play-in tournament this year. So if the Lakers drop to seven, which would mean the Trailblazers and the Mavericks would have to leapfrog them, they would have to play an extra series just to get into the playoffs and then have to play either Utah or Phoenix or Denver, LA, whoever ends up finishing in, in, in number two. I don't think that will happen, but the thing is with these high ankle sprains, like LeBron could be out for another month. LeBron could be out for another three weeks easily. And at that point, this Lakers roster, they're in some serious trouble. They're four and six in their last 10 games. Meanwhile, the uh, Trailblazers and the Mavericks are seven and three in their last 10 games. So, based off of those trajectories alone, especially when Portland's only a half game back, the Lakers and Dallas is only what, two and a half back, if that continues, and LeBron doesn't get back with enough time to be able to pick up some of that ground, the Lakers could be in some serious trouble. Now, if they get AD and LeBron back healthy, I'm not rooting against them, but I've said it before on the pod. I'm worried about what Anthony Davis is what's going on with his health, health in general, whether it's the Achilles, the calf, whatever it is that's really going on there. You should be concerned if you're a Lakers fan, but again, it's not smart to bet against LeBron James and Anthony Davis when they're healthy. The question is how healthy will they be and how far are they going to fall here? So just got to stay locked in, got to stay ready because the the NBA is all over the place. And I think it's an objectively, it's a great thing for the league. Uh, My hope is that as we progress and as the season continues, that the postseason will only elevate what has already been a wild season a condensed season 72 games but it's been really entertaining uh that being said we've really only had a couple of like top level games and honestly it's almost more fun to watch the the NBA from like afar in a lot of ways because some of the games aren't necessarily the most competitive but the NBA is all about storylines it's all about player movement it's and, and half the time Finding out that, oh, Andre Drummond got a buyout and is now with the Lakers and LaMarcus Aldridge and Blake Griffin are now in the Nets. That stuff doesn't move the needle historically. You know, buyouts don't really make much of a difference. I think Blake Griffin can. I've been really impressed with what I've seen from him up there in Brooklyn so far. But when it comes down to the playoffs, I mean, that's the bread and butter. So even if the individual games haven't been that great, there have been storylines galore So from afar, it's been an interesting season. I can get, if you're sitting down on League Pass watching every single game, you're probably saying, Jeff, what the hell are you talking about? None of these games have been competitive. And some of them haven't, some of them have. But the games that have been competitive have been really, really good. And I think for the playoffs, we're setting up because of how good the top teams are, both in the East and the West. I think the Eastern Conference and Western Conference semifinals and the Eastern Conference Western Conference finals are going to be really entertaining and hopefully set us up for an awesome NBA finals, which again, we're only about six, six weeks away here from the start of the play in tournament. And from there, all hell breaks loose come playoff time. And I'm excited for it. Uh, That's all I got for y'all today. Short pod, fun pod, Uh, like rate review, subscribe. We are in the middle of some rebranding. I'm very excited about this. We're getting a YouTube channel set up. Uh, we're revamping our Instagram. We're re- revamping our Twitter. We're going, basically taking this bitch to the next level. And I am so excited to be on this journey with all of you. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate all of you guys for for listening, supporting, subscribing. Uh, please share, rate, review, subscribe. Tell somebody about it. I'm going to say it every single episode. Just tell one person. One person that you think might like a little bit of sports, extra sports in their life if they don't get enough already. Uh, And just keep it locked in because we're going to be back here later on this week. We're going to preview the masters and uh, I'm not sure yet. We got, we got some other stuff working. So we got to pick, you know, scheduling wise, what exactly we want to get into, but there will be plenty of golf talk on Thursday. So as always, thank you guys for listening. And we will be back here later on the week on the read option.